Grab a Bible and let's turn to James chapter 2. James chapter 2, verses 18 to 26 today. Part 2 from, message, from the message last week. We're covering a section that has challenged the church over the centuries, especially Reformed Protestants who rightly confess that justification is by faith alone apart from works. And that's nearly a quote from Romans 3.28 that I gave you. Uh, we hold, Paul says, that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. And yet, at least at first glance, James seems to be asserting something different. He says in verse 24 that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And so the famous question becomes, is James contradicting what Paul says in Romans 3, 28, that we cannot be justified by works? Uh, even the most famous uh, reformer, Martin Luther, had difficulty reconciling James with Paul. On this point, uh, one, one time he said, many have labored to reconcile James with Paul, but not with real success. These are at odds. Faith justifies. Faith does not justify. Is there, if there is anyone who can bring these into harmony with one another, I will set my beretta on him, that's his professor's hat, and let him scold me as a fool. Luther had a way with words. But if we truly believe that the spirit who inspired James is the same spirit who inspired Paul, I think we must see how these two complement one another. I think many in church history uh, have shown that James is not contradicting Paul when he says that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Rather, they're using the same words with slightly different meanings to address different problems. What determines the meaning of words is the context in which we use them. My wife Rachel grew up in Ghana. Ghanaians love to play football. Okay? But if, if a Ghanaian came to visit you in the U.S. and you took him out to play football at the local park, you'd have a very confused Ghanaian. Football in Ghana, and really the rest of the world, is soccer in the United States. What determines the meaning of words is the context in which we use them. And once we grasp the context in which James is using words like faith and justification and works, we'll come to see that he and Paul are preaching the same message. And essentially that message is this, true and justifying faith necessarily produces works. If it doesn't, it's dead. It's like a corpse. Let's read the passage before we get started, though. Look with me at verse 18. But someone will say, You have faith, and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? 
Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works, and the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. This is the Lord's word. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, I thank you for these words and I pray that you would enable us to understand them this morning. Give us grace to receive them all in the humility and in the joy of the Holy Spirit. Amen. The first thing James establishes in verses 18 and 19 is that saving faith and works are inseparable. Saving faith and works are inseparable. Verses 14 to 17, which we covered last Sunday, introduced an important contrast to keep in mind. James contrasted two kinds of faith, a saving faith and a dead faith. On the one hand, there's saving faith, which involves a real, substantive reliance upon Jesus that necessarily produces works. And then there's the dead faith, the phony faith claim that produces no works because it lacks a union with Jesus. James is now making his point even sharper because he anticipates the objection that someone might have. Someone will say, you have faith and I have works. The objection seems to be that James can't just start coming into church and condemning people who don't have any works. Isn't it possible that works and faith could be isolated from each other? Absolutely not. For James, saving faith will necessarily, that's an important word, will necessarily or inevitably prove itself with works. That's what he says in verse 19. Show me your faith apart from your works. I will show you my faith by my works. So a true reliance upon Jesus in the heart will necessarily demonstrate itself by works. And when you hear works, don't start thinking, uh, you know, works that you're trying to do to earn God's favor. James means works that flow from a heart already transformed and enraptured by the grace of God in Christ. I mean, that's, that's where it all started, right? With, with verse, chapter 1, verse 18. That's where he started us, with the grace of God. He says there, of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. So faith didn't come out of nowhere. Faith is the cry of the new birth. It's a gift from God. Even Paul alludes to it being a gift from God in Ephesians 2, 8. And and it's quite unthinkable to James that if God gives you his nature through the new birth, that you wouldn't live like him. That you wouldn't live like your heavenly father 
in speech and in compassion and in holiness. Likewise, it's unthinkable to James that any true and saving faith would lack works. Saving faith will be observable to others in the same way that we can tell whether a tree is good or bad by looking at its fruit, to use a common illustration from Jesus. True and saving faith necessarily produces works. Faith and works are not equal, but they are inseparable. And to make his point even sharper, he basically says that a faith lacking such works looks more like the faith of demons. Verse 19, you believe that God is one, you do well, even the demons believe and shudder. In other words, the nature of this dead faith amounts to a mere intellectual assent to truths about God. Don't get him wrong. He's not denying the importance of propositional truth. That, too, is, is a necessary component to our faith. But if that's all it is, and there's no trust in the person of Jesus, there's no transformative union, union with the person of Jesus, then your faith isn't any better than that of a demon. Demons know more about God than any of us, even to the point of trembling. But they never please God. They don't, have a, they don't want to do His will. That's not true of someone with saving faith. Saving faith and works are inseparable, which also helps us understand what James means by faith alone in verse 24, doesn't it? James has this, James has verses 14 to 19 in mind when he says in verse 24, you see that a person is justified by faith, by works and not by faith alone. This fills in the content of what he means by faith alone. He knows of no saving faith that is alone with respect to works. Faith inevitably works. If it doesn't produce works, then James says that it's not a faith that will save you from God's judgment. It's totally useless in what matters most, namely our relationship with God. And this he then supports with two Old Testament examples. The first example is Abraham, when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar. The second example is Rahab, when she hid the spies before Joshua's conquest of Jericho. And in both examples we're told that they were justified by works. Of course, now we need to flesh out what he means by saying what, that Abraham and Rahab were justified by their works and compare it to Paul along the way. So let's do that now by making five crucial observations from this passage. Number one, God imputes His righteousness to us by faith apart from works. God imputes His righteousness to us by faith apart from works. And you may be asking, where in the world are you getting that? Since James is saying, seems to be saying the opposite here. But I want you to look more closely at verse 23. 
James quotes from Genesis 15, 6. And you may remember the story. Years have, have passed. Abraham is still childless, even though God promised him a unique offspring. Then God brings Abraham outside and says, you know, look at all the stars in the heavens. Number them. If you're able to number them, he says, so shall your offspring be. And the Bible says then Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. He didn't work for his righteousness. By simply trusting in God and his promises, God counted to Abraham a righteousness that wasn't inherently his. God gave his own righteousness to Abraham by faith alone. And Paul makes a very big deal of this in Romans 4, verses 3 to 6. And he uses bookkeeping language to get his point across uh, in terms of the idea is that in terms of righteousness, Abraham's bank account is zero. Okay, and he doesn't then fill up that bank account by doing a bunch of works that then puts God in debt to him. It's not how God does it. No, God must do it for him. God must give Abraham the righteousness and by simply trusting in God who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited for righteousness. That is, not to say that his faith is the righteousness, but that his faith connects him to God's promise of righteousness. Okay? That's basically Paul's argument in Romans 4, 3 to 6. And that's how it is for anybody who wants to be made right with God. Maybe you're not right with God this this morning. We're all bankrupt before God. We've got nothing to bring. All we bring to God's judgment seat is our sin. And there's two big things we need to escape God's condemnation. We need the forgiveness of our sins and we need the righteousness of God. That's the only righteousness that will count before God is God's righteousness. And the good news is that by simply trusting in Jesus... And relying on Him to save us, God forgives all of our sins and He imputes to us all His righteousness in Christ. So in the moment we trust in Jesus, quite apart from works, God declares us not guilty and He declares us righteous before His judgment seat. So by quoting Genesis 15, 6, James is also trumpeting that God justifies the ungodly by faith alone and not by works of the law, just like Paul did in Romans 4. They both agree, in other words, that justification is by faith apart from works, and they find that in the example of Genesis 15, 6. Faith unites us to Jesus' righteousness, and based on Jesus' righteousness, God declares us not guilty. Number two, justifying faith is presupposed throughout James's argument. Justifying faith is presupposed throughout James's argument. In verse 22, James says that faith was active along with Abraham's works. That doesn't mean that 
That the kind of life that Abraham was living is that he was believing upon God and then he was coming over here and adding a little bit of works to his faith along the way. That's not what it means. It means that his faith was standing in and behind the works all along the way. It's not a matter here of faith and works, but of Abraham's faith producing the works. And Hebrews 11 Verses 17 and 19 makes the same point. Abraham's faith, it says, had already linked him with God's promises even before he offered up Isaac. And it was Abraham's faith that God was even able to raise Isaac from the dead. It was that faith that actually led him to act the way he did in offering up Isaac. Hebrews 11.31 makes a similar observation about Rahab. By faith, it says, Rahab, the prostitute, did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. So faith stands behind her works. James also says in verse 22 that faith was completed by works. That means his, his faith found its ultimate expression in works. Works are the observable fruition of justifying faith. But the point is the same. Faith is presupposed here all along the way. It's, it's underlying and it's beneath the works. Paul agrees with this as well. He doesn't make a distinction like James does between saving faith and dead faith. But Paul is constantly showing that faith necessarily leads to obedience. We looked at this last week from Romans 1.5. He calls it a, the obedience of faith uh, among the nations. Uh, 1 Thessalonians 1.3, he calls it the work of faith. Uh, in Galatians 5.6, he talks about um, Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision count for anything, but rather faith working through love. That's what really matters. Faith working through love. Paul knows of no other kind of faith than the faith that works through love. And, and it's this faith that ends up justifying one before God. Number three, Christ's imputed righteousness has an inevitable external embodiment. Christ's imputed righteousness has an inevitable external embodiment. In verse 23, James says that Abraham's works fulfilled Genesis 15, 6 which teaches that it's by faith apart from works that he's justified. This was huge for me in understanding this passage. We just saw from Genesis 15.6, and by the way, Paul uses Genesis 15.6, that justification is by faith alone apart from works. And in that justification, we receive Christ's righteousness by imputation. God credits it to our account. 
But that justification, that imputed righteousness of Christ that comes apart from works, guess what? It reaches its full expression in doing works. Okay? Do you see that? Just think about the narrative with me of Genesis 15.6 and Genesis 22. One coming before the other. Justifying faith, like we see with Abraham in Genesis 15.6, what happens? It reaches its full expression in Genesis 22 when he's offering up Isaac. Works are the inevitable embodiment of the justifying faith that links us to Jesus' righteousness. And be careful here. The works do not increase the righteousness that we've already received by faith alone. That's Catholic theology, and it undermines the gospel of Jesus Christ. Works do not increase the righteousness that we've already received by faith alone. That's the Council of Trent. Nothing needs to be added to Jesus' perfect righteousness. Rather, the works manifest the liberating power of Jesus' perfect righteousness that's been imputed to us. This is why a faith that lacks works is such nonsense to James. I mean, how is it even possible that someone be united to Jesus and His righteousness and not do righteousness? How is it even possible? This is why the, the free grace theology of folks like Zane Hodges and others who say that you can make Jesus your Savior without making Him your Lord makes nonsense of the Bible. Faith unites us to Jesus and His perfect righteousness, and that righteousness necessarily frees us and transforms us and converts us into a people who want to do righteousness. God's not just creating a company of people with sins forgiven. He's creating a company of people who, because their sins are forgiven, because they've been set free from sin, enjoy and delight in doing God's will. If faith truly connects you to a living Lord who is victorious over sin's power and who is someone who lives for God, and if that someone who lives for God is truly living in you, how can it be that righteousness won't be present in us and be demonstrated through us? How can it be that we not live as He lives in obedience to God and in love for our neighbors? Jesus' righteousness won't let us remain as we are. It is powerful to effect change. Okay? And with this, Paul also agrees. There are a number of places, but maybe one is to think about is Ephesians 4.24. He says, to put on the new self which is created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Not the old self in Adam, the new self that's been clothed with Christ. The new self in Christ must act in accordance with what it already possesses, namely God's image-bearing righteousness. We're finding a lot of agreement between James and Paul at this point. Number four, 
Works, based on everything we've said, works, therefore, manifest the presence of justifying faith. Works manifest the presence of justifying faith. And here's where we come to a better understanding of the way James is using the word justify. When we usually think of justification, we normally think of of what we covered earlier. God's legal declaration of righteous the moment we trust in Jesus. But justification in the Bible can, can also carry slightly different nuances. And even this week, in my quiet time, I ran across uh, a different nuance of justification in Matthew 12, 37. Jesus says, by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. We normally understand justification as something that happens in the moment we believe. It's, it's a sealed reality. It's a done deal. In the past, we have peace with God. He declares us righteous in that moment of our conversion. But in this case, Jesus seems to be pushing justification to the future judgment. You will be justified by your words on the day of judgment. And not only that, he's basing it on works, just like James seems to be doing here. So how do these two fit together? They fit together in that the one is the public manifestation of the other. So sometimes justify refers to being shown to be righteous, proven to be righteous, okay? And and in this case, good works are the inevitable, external badge of internal justifying faith, to use the words of Greg Beale. Good works are the inevitable external badge of internal justifying faith. So this is why theologians like Jonathan Edwards, for example, and others would would make a distinction between declared justification and manifested justification. Declared justification and manifested justification. Declared justification is when God declares a sinner righteous in the moment he trusts in Jesus. That's how somebody enters into a relationship with God. Manifested justification speaks to God giving proof that a person is, in fact, righteous by their works. That is, their works become the necessary evidence of the internal justification by faith. And usually the Bible will push that manifested justification all the way to the future judgment. When the future judgment is a judgment according to works, and our works will reveal whether or not we were in Christ. But James sets it within Abraham and Rahab's lifetime. He says that, if we say this manifested justification, he says that it occurred when their faith took action. That's what he says. So it's not future like Paul and Jesus say elsewhere. Abraham was justified when he offered up Isaac. Rahab was justified when she received 
the messengers. So James is, is nuancing this a bit differently. So, how does this play out? How do all these threads kind of fit together here? It goes something like this. The only way a sinner can come into a right relationship with God is by faith alone. As if, as if he receives the imputed righteousness of Christ by faith alone. And in that moment of trust, God makes a legal declaration that he is, that he is or she is righteous in Christ. The righteousness of Christ then liberates us to obey God. It opens up a whole new way of life where we can and we want to obey God. And then throughout that Christian's life, God looks upon those works which are rooted in His liberating grace and He says, this one is righteous. I declared him righteous. I declared her righteous when they believed in my son Jesus. And this work that they're doing over here and this work that, that she's doing over there, they're all miniature testimonies that my son lives in them and that justifying faith is present and active and will in fact vindicate them on the last day. That's what's going on here. In terms of justification. So James's concern with justification isn't to explain how someone gets right with God. Which is what Romans 3.28 is about. Where he says that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. That's not James's concern here. James's concern is to explain the inevitable results once somebody is right with God. Following with me? Justification by works in Romans 3.28 means gaining a right standing with God through things we do which we should reject and which is what Paul is rejecting in Romans 3.28. Justification by works in James means evidencing a right standing with God through works which we should affirm. Okay, so those two things are not contradictory. Or to say it another way, this is the way church history has said it, we're justified by faith alone, but not by a faith that remains alone. And if you want even further clarity, we're going to write down a little equation on your handout. I meant to put it on the PowerPoint. I forgot. So we're going to write down this equation. And the first two are heresy. And the last one is the gospel. Okay, so here's your equation. We'll use letters. F for faith, W for works, and J for justification. Here's the first heresy. F plus W, then draw an arrow sign, J. So F plus W, arrow sign, J. The arrow means leads to. So that would be faith plus works equals justification. That's an under, that undermines the gospel. And that is what Catholics, our Catholic neighbors teach.
Num- this is the second heresy. Faith, or F, draw an arrow, another arrow sign. F, arrow sign, J, minus W. So faith leads to a justification that lacks works. Would be what that one's saying. That also is not true. And that's what James is combating. Here's the gospel. F, arrow sign, J plus W. So faith leads to justification, which inevitably produces works. Okay, and the works become the evidence that there is truly the presence of justifying faith. Okay, finally, observation number five. Friendship with God is the goal of justifying faith. Friendship with God is the goal of justifying faith. James writes in verse 23, And Abraham was called a friend of God. What does it mean to be a friend of God? We'll glance over at chapter 4, verse 4. James writes this, You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. What does it mean to be a friend of God? In light of chapter 4, verse 4, it means that you're no longer part of the world's system of evil and rebellion against God. This isn't a Jesus is my homeboy and I live like I want. This is, this is something, this means that something fundamental about you has changed. This is the goal of faith. The goal of faith isn't just forgiveness and a get out of hell free card. The goal is to be God's friend. We were made to walk with our maker and live as he created us to live. And we can't do that when we're trapped in our sins. But by trusting in Jesus, whose death liberates us and whose righteousness transforms us, we can now live as we were created to live, as God's friend. Loving His presence, following His words, doing His will. Good works are the inevitable outworking of our friendship with God. Is friendship with God the goal of your faith? Or are you professing to know Jesus just because you don't want to go to hell? Or are you a Christian merely because you think it's the best philosophical answer to the world's problems? It certainly is the best answer. But the goal isn't a mere mental assent to the truth of Christianity. The goal is friendship with God. Knowing Him, and more importantly, Him knowing you. Jesus' blood and righteousness have given you free access to God by faith alone. If you are trusting in Christ, your friendship with the world has ended. And now you are God's friend. Walk with your Maker. Walk with Him. You were saved to have God 
and to commune with God and to walk with God and to obey God in all that you do. Sometimes people call this coram Deo, living before the face of God. And you know what happens when you're a friend of God? Your faith produces a life that looks something like Abraham's and Rahab's. That is, after they were saved. Something I I mentioned last week is that in the midst of all the theological discussion on justification and works, uh, it's sometimes easy to lose sight of the very works that James identifies in this passage. In verses 14 to 17, it was caring for poverty-stricken brothers and sisters in Christ. But what are the works he identifies here with with Abraham and Rahab? What what other sorts of works does, does saving faith produce? Well, with Abraham, we find radical obedience to God's Word. Radical obedience to God's Word. God tested Abraham's faith in the most radical way. He called him to sacrifice his only son. All throughout his life, Abraham had trusted in God in the, in the face of great odds. Sarah was barren and, 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 and past the age of having children. And then eventually, God miraculously gives them Isaac. But now Abraham was being called to trust God's promise even at the cost of his only son. And he still acts on what he knew to be true about God. And if you read Genesis 22 in light of Romans 4 and in light of Hebrews 11, you see what his faith looked like. That even if this knife falls on my son, I'm coming back down the mountain with him. That's what he says in Genesis 22.5. We're coming back. We're going to go make a sacrifice. We are coming back. Me and my son, in other words. And in Genesis 22, we see that he believes that God will provide a lamb. In Hebrews 11, we see that God will raise Isaac from the dead. That's what Abraham believed. Why does he believe this? Because there's a promised Savior bound to this boy. He must save him. And so... In believing these things, Abraham goes up the mountain. His faith gives way to his radical obedience. God's Word calls all of us to radical obedience. That's not to say that all of us will be led to do the very same things, but it will mean that all of us submit to God's revealed will in the Bible, and that revealed will in the Bible calls us to things like denying ourselves, taking up our cross, and following Jesus daily. It calls us to give our total allegiance to Jesus when the surrounding culture is against us. It calls us not to compromise Christian principles when the rest of the world is playing politics. It calls us to love our neighbor sacrificially when love is not reciprocated to us. Is there anything that you're holding back from God? Anything that's hindering you from giving yourself wholly to His will? Consider again the faith of Abraham, or or better, 
Consider the God of Abraham's faith. He has the ability to do all that he promised for the world. He has the wisdom to bring all his purposes to pass. He has the ability to meet all your needs. According to his riches in Christ Jesus, he has sovereignty over all nations and peoples and their leaders. He has the power to raise the dead, as we see most pointedly in our Lord Jesus Christ. We can give ourselves wholeheartedly to his word because he is trustworthy. With Rahab, we also learn that faith produces risk-taking action for God's kingdom. It produces risk-taking action for God's kingdom. Rahab was part of the Canaanite nation. She, she lived in Jericho, a city that, was a, that God was about to destroy. And she also lived under the rule of the Canaanite king. And when the king learned that the spies from Israel had come to her, he sins and he asks her to bring them out. But as the story unfolds, we see that Abraham's ultimate allegiance isn't to this guy. It's to the king of all kings, the Lord of hosts. Right? She heard of this king's coming, what he did to the king, what he did to split the waters and kill this king and kill that king. And now he's on their doorstep. She's heard of his coming. She knows his power to destroy nations. She heard of how great his wrath really is. She heard of his fame and his glory. And even before the spies had arrived, she had already put her faith in this Lord of hosts. You can hear her telling it in Joshua 2, verses 8 to 11. And she knew that the Lord would show steadfast love to all who feared Him. And this faith led her to risk-taking action for the spread of God's kingdom in Canaan. She served the spies even even if it could cost her life. Does your faith evidence itself in this way? Is there a willingness to take risks to see God's kingdom advance? Maybe that risk will mean serving in a context that's less comfortable for you. I remember how risky it was for me before I had children to jump into children's ministry at the request of Trey Megan. It was risky going into this two, three-year-old classroom. It makes me uncomfortable I don't know how to talk to them. Maybe that risk will look like standing up to your employer when he asks you to do things that are contrary to God's word. You might risk being fired. But God's name will be upheld. Maybe it will mean sharing the gospel with that coworker you've been praying for for months. Maybe that risk will mean stepping into a leadership role that you notice needs filling in the, in the church. Maybe that risk will mean moving overseas to spread God's fame among peoples who have no access to the gospel. Risk will look different for all of us, but the aim will be the same. The advance of God's kingdom and the spread of His glory. And one final point to take home here. Why would James choose Abraham and Rahab as his two examples? I mean, the writer of Hebrews also lists them out, but alongside a long list of others. Why does James choose these two examples in particular? 
Perhaps it's to show us that God's justifying grace in Christ is able to transform anyone. You see, James hits the two extremes, doesn't he? The patriarch and the prostitute. The father of the Jews and the nobody among the Gentiles. A man popular for his wealth and a woman known for her promiscuity. And one takeaway from that spectrum, I think, is that the gospel of justification by faith alone can transform anybody's life. It doesn't matter where you've come from or what ethnicity you belong to, or what sins you may have in your background, what mess you're currently going through. God's grace can reach you wherever you are and transform you by the righteousness of Christ. That's the whole point of the gospel, isn't it? God doesn't justify the righteous. God justifies the ungodly. He justifies the ungodly when the ungodly trust in His Son for their righteousness. And and that's true in our mission to others that, that you're going to talk to tomorrow at work and on the road and when you're at the workbench and family members that you'll visit this summer and acquaintances on your street. God's grace can change any of them through the gospel of justification by faith alone. We can offer to any of them the person of Jesus in all of His righteousness. And by simply trusting in Him, all of their sins will be forgiven and all of Jesus' righteousness will become theirs. And it won't leave them the same either. As we talked about earlier, it will transform them into a people who show compassion for those in need, who obey God's Word at all costs to themselves, and who take risks for the kingdom of God. So let's not miss the opportunities that God may give us, even this week, to share with others His incredible grace in justification. Let's pray together.